If you're an entrepreneurial public servant, this podcast is for you. Welcome to Inspiring People and Places, where we interview national leaders in the architectural, engineering, construction, and development industry in an effort to educate, innovate, and inspire industry professionals to disrupt the status quo, improve their project teams, and steward public and private investments more effectively. I'm your host, BJ Kramer, President and CEO of MCFA. And in today's episode, we're sitting down with my former commander from the North Atlantic Division, longtime mentor and good friend, Brigadier General, retired Duke DeLuca. Welcome to the show, sir. Hey, BJ, good to see you again. Thanks for inviting me. It's my pleasure. So as, as an introduction to this, I have to uh, tell the audience that General DeLuca is the inspiration for this podcast. Uh, I, it's got to be five years ago, General DeLuca was speaking at the Association of General Contractors, talking about the uh, basically the risk-reward matrix of public engineers and, and capital project leaders, and, and really public leaders in general, being able to take risks and uh, innovate inside of their institutions. And from that, from that moment on, uh, in addition to that, he was talking about the uh, the return of, on investment of infrastructure investment in our nation and in the history of the world. So those two topics combined started out as what I called return on infrastructure, which was going to be the original uh, the original title of our podcast. But we uh, we took a different direction. We went with inspiring people and places to be a little more general. But uh, Sir, it's, it's great to have you on. Uh, I can't thank you enough for all of your mentorship through the years, and I think the audience is going to get uh, a lot of value out of our conversation. So uh, with that, I'd like to tee up and, and just uh, welcome you to the show and allow you to give a bit of an introduction of, uh, of yourself. Uh, sure. Well, thank you for all that. That was uh, embarrassingly complimentary. Thank you very much. Um, I'm a Grew up a lower middle class kid. My father was the first generation born Italian American. His father was an immigrant to this country. Uh, my father was the first to go to college on the GI Bill after World War II. He had worked his way into the lower middle class uh, through the benefit of the GI Bill. He became a journalist. He was a sports writer. Uh, he had been a great athlete in school and growing up, and so never lost his love of the sport and was actually a very good writer about the sport and the personal stories, which is what you've discovered is people respond to personal stories best and most vividly, even though you can talk about grand issues. If you just talk about the grand issues, it doesn't engage people in the same way. And so he always could find the most interesting individual personal story associated with any particular sporting event that looked like just an ordinary minor league baseball team game or college <laughs> football game or college basketball game or something. And he would find out that the two star players had actually grown up together and then moved apart because one of their dads got a different job somewhere. And now this is the first time they've seen each other and it's for the championship, you know, stuff like that. He could find that hook and it would draw you in every time. And so I appreciate that. That's what you're doing with this podcast, right? That's great. Yeah. I appreciate it. um, Unfortunately, my father was uh, taken from us uh, early uh, when I was a teen and uh, money was tight. And so I had, you know, uh, there's a funny mayor from uh, a small town in Mississippi I used to have to deal with in the army. And he was, uh, he was quite colorful. And he would say, you know, I take no as just an invitation to further negotiation. <laughs> so, <laughs> but I had learned that lesson as a young kid because of these circumstances. I was a bright boy. 
uh, and I was ambitious and I knew that I wanted to go to, to college somehow like my father had done. And, uh, and so I uh, had to find a way to do that. So I found a way to pay my own way through school, both through working, you know, in high school and, uh, and in college and in winning a scholarship through the military that brought me, that's what brought me into the military is I owe them an obligation. Uh, after the obligation of four years, I would have been free to get out if I wanted to and do something else. But I actually was enjoying pursuing what I was doing at the time I was doing it. I thought it was extremely important to our country, the nation, the globe. And so, um, my second tour really is what clinched it for me. I had such a rewarding time and such an important time, uh, being deployed to combat a couple times, uh, that, uh, it ended up being my career. And I was surrounded by fabulous young Americans for 32 years of an army career, the average age for most of that time until the end, when you got to see me in, in U.S. Army College years, <laughs> for most of the time, the average age surrounding me was 19 years old, right? So I, I never under, underestimate what young people can do and what they're capable of processing and, and dealing with. Um, and even as a young person, I made some pretty damn good decisions that in retrospect now, looking back, I say, holy cow, that was clever. I'm surprised <laughs> I came up with it. <laughs> and maybe you'll hear about some of those today, but not all. So, uh, yeah, so um, that's kind of my background um, uh, in short summary. We can go into as much detail as you want, but that's not really as interesting a story as the other things you want to talk about. <laughs> Let, let's let's dig in a little bit, though. So your your education, since I'm a Philly native, we've got to get a, a little shout out to Penn. Yes. It was, it was, it was R- ROTC at Penn, right? Yes. And yes, double honestly- major? I was, yes. And uh, this is an important, one of the lessons learned uh, for navigating your way through life and the profession, whatever profession, but in this case, the, you know, the, the building and infrastructure professions and public service professions. Um, I had an obstacle. I wanted to go to a great school and get a good education. I actually wanted to understand how the world worked. And to me, that meant I needed to understand what drove people to behave the way that they behaved as in groups, not just individually. So it wasn't psychology. It was economics. Mm-hmm. I needed to understand economics because people were doing things because of economics and they didn't realize that's why they were doing it, but that's why they were doing it. And then the other thing was I needed to understand how the world worked physically and that's engineering, right? Physics is a little too theoretical, mathematics, super theoretical, but necessary. But engineering, that's when, you know, you understand, you can understand it, but you can't prove it, right? You, you know, that's what I wanted. I want to understand it. So I wanted a program like that, and Penn offered one. Of course, Penn was an Ivy League school and enormously expensive. So first first obstacle, you got no money. <laughs> you got rabbit ears when you pull your pockets out with no, not even a butterscotch uh, candy in there. So I had to go find the money, right? So we did that. Um, Penn initially wasn't sure they wanted to let me in for the double major or have me do the double major. So I had to fight with the administration to do that. While I was there, I was being paid ROTC. Um, I actually got a full engineering degree in mechanical engineering and a full economics degree, but that was gonna take five years. And the program was four years for the army scholarship. So I went to the army and said, okay, this is what I'm trying to do. And they actually underwrote it. And they said, fine, we'll take two degrees with you. When you come in, you see you owe us five years. Okay. And then, uh, and I did a work study and some other things to help pay for that last year, which because not all of it was covered by a scholarship. And then uh, <clears throat> they wanted to branch me into counterintelligence, which is not, 
you know, back then the, the army asks you to list your top 10 priorities of branches. Now there's, I think there's 20 of them. So they could always give you anything they wanted and tell you that you asked for it, right? That was the game. <laughs> and, uh, and so I asked for what I wanted. And of course I got one that wasn't on my list. It was counterintelligence, which, you know, I'm sure they thought I was a bright boy and thought that would be something I should go do. But to me, that was working in an office, working in the domestic United States, doing things that I really did not want to do. I want, If I was going to go in the military for four years, I wanted to do the military thing, right? Full up. And then we'll see what happens after that, right? So I went down to the ROTC detachment and I photocopied the Army regulation that showed branches and where the most source degrees were that go into that branch and the backgrounds they were looking for for people. And I photocopied this counterintelligence page and the engineer page, and I mailed it to Army Personnel Command. Now, can you imagine getting a letter from a cadet? Nowadays, I look back and say, I don't even know how this somebody read it. You know, I'm surprised it didn't get thrown out with the junk mailers. And uh, they didn't answer my letter. But when I got my orders, it was ordering me to report to Fort Belvoir to be an engineer in the, in the Army. So again, by asking for what you wanted and going after what you wanted, in spite of the odds, sometimes you get it, right? You can't get it if you don't go after it. That's, we'll talk about that some more later. Um, and then my unit of assignment. I was assigned to a construction, troop construction unit in Germany that was doing, it was designed to repair airfields in the event of a war with the Soviet Union rapidly, which we would need a lot of construction assets to do that because the Soviets had like three frontal aviation armies that were going to overwhelm us initially and bomb the shit out of our airfields. So we needed to keep them open. The problem was in the meantime, while they weren't being bombed, you were building ranges and other boring stuff out at Gravenvir and other training areas. And it was not an exciting way to do your service. So I wanted to be on the freedom's frontier. I wanted to be on the inner German border facing down the eighth guards army of the group of Soviet forces, Germany. So I tried to switch with another officer who wanted to be a builder. He wanted to build things. And so uh, everybody told us no. First, uh, PERSCOM in D.C. told us no, Personnel Command. Then Personnel Command in Europe said, oh, there's six months. I was going to go to Airborne and Ranger School. This guy wasn't doing any of that. They said, there's six months difference in your report dates. No way we're doing this swap. And then finally, someone called the unit commander, the battalion commander at the time, now retired Major General Russell Furman, former Deputy Corps of Engineers Commanding General, and who I serve on a board with, a nonprofit board with now, <laughs> Russ. And they asked him. We said, we got these two guys. One of them, this guy wants to come to you, but you got to wait six months. And the other guy, you know, you're going to have him in July. And God bless Russ Fermi. He said, well, I'd rather have the guy who wants to be here. And so against all odds, I got to go to this unit and had, you know, a very developmental experience, uh, you know, in so many ways. One, we may hear one or two stories about that. Who knows? Um, you know, and so charting your own path and going after it. It doesn't always work out. Believe me, I have executed as many plan Bs as I <laughs> However, you can't get it if you don't go after it, right? Whatever it is, that goal that you're trying to achieve. It could be for your organization, for yourself, for your family, for your team, whatever it is. What's, what's uh, the worst they can tell you is no, right? You know what? And, it, and like, like the mayor says, Mayor Brown, no is just an invitation to further negotiation. There you go. <laughs> It's funny. I, I didn't know that story about you. And I actually have a very similar story to um, how I landed at Philly District during BRAC because yeah. the I, I left 4ID. We had just gotten back from deployment. Yeah. 
I was doing the co-op degree program at Missouri University Science and Technology, and they told me the command queues were full, and my brigade commander, who was by name requesting me back to Fort Hood, had just gotten yeah. a job at the Pentagon. So it, you're not getting command for another two years. Yeah. So I said, well, if I'm not in control of that, maybe I'll write the district commanders for all yeah. of the districts on the East Coast. And one thing led to another, and Gwen Baker said, I've got a huge program at Aberdeen Proving Ground, and I want a green Great. suitor on it. Super. Uh, so. I, 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 uh, would emphasize that to, to anybody, but especially the junior people, uh, trying to control your own destiny and, and navigate your own course, um, especially in your career. Uh, all right. So let's, let's fast forward because I, I don't want to, I don't want to go too deep without touching on prior to North Atlantic division, you sure. are the 20th engineer brigade commander deployed, um, any any good stories or, or can you tell us how you ended up in command there? Yeah. So on the path toward this brigade command, I, I followed uh, a command track in the Army. And, you know, in the Army, you come in, uh, you have a basic branch and some you can come in right away and do like infantry, armor, artillery, aviation, you know, signal corps. Uh, and some, some are only opportunities that come to you later. Once you've proven that you're part of the institution, you're going to succeed in it and then we'll make you a comptroller and intel, you know, some sort of specialized intelligence person will make you a cyber warrior today. We have those positions. We may make you, uh, we may qualify you. You know, when I first came in, aviation wasn't a branch. You couldn't come in as a second lieutenant. You had to do it as a captain. Hmm. So um, <clears throat> there was a certain way to get ahead. And uh, I proved myself as a young officer, as a platoon leader, as a, as a company commander, did very well in Europe in a heavy unit, a mechanized unit, and did some innovative things there, even as a young person, because that's just how I am. You know, I always am trying to think of a better mousetrap. And then I went to the 82nd Airborne Division, which was the high readiness unit, first to deploy anywhere in the world, you know, uh, uh, and we were on alert cycle, you know, every uh, 12 weeks, we were on alert for, you know, six weeks. And I packed my bags often and actually went to a couple of places, including the first Gulf War, you know, in, in that deployment cycle. Um, went to, uh, I did not go to Cuba. I had part of my company go to Cuba, but my whole company wasn't required. So I didn't go, I mean, not to Cuba, to uh, Panama, when the Panama in 1989 operation. Um, we, was that, that was company command? I was a company commander during 19, the Panama uh, okay. uh, invasion. Coup de main, really, was a... a you know, took out the government and arrested the, the leader of the country. Um, and, uh, you know, there was a path then to success. To succeed, you were on this command track. And then, you know, you had some time as a captain and a major aide to do some staff jobs for the Army. And they needed a lot of administrative functions that need to be done in this big organization that has a million people, soldiers, and 500,000 civilians worldwide. And um, the key to success back then was you do your basic branch for me, engineer, and then you become a personnel officer at the personnel command, right? That was the way to get ahead. And uh, I looked at that and said, holy cow, I am so uninterested in doing that. <laughs> that seems very boring to me and not rewarding work that I, I don't want to do. So I found the coolest job I could find in the military. And it was something called the U.S. Military Liaison Mission. You smell them. <laughs> <U.S. Air. laughs> so there were smellums and there were you smellums in Europe. This is in the days before we had so many eyes in the sky that we could see everything remotely. We had some very limited and highly classified satellite intelligence, but we actually had, by agreement with the Soviet Union, 
physical people who were present in East Germany and in West Germany to observe the movements of forces so that no one could prepare to conduct an attack by surprise because that was the big concern that everybody had was no one wanted to be caught by surprise, you know? And so they had a unit based in Frankfurt, West Germany called Smellum, Soviet military liaison mission. They were essentially uniformed personnel, but who often wore civilian clothes. They had areas where they were allowed to go and areas they were forbidden to go to. And they always tried to get in those areas, right? <laughs> to check our equipment out, to get inside our equipment, and look at it, to go, see our training exercises, to check status of readiness, whatever, all kinds of things. And of course, we had the same thing based in East Berlin in Potsdam. We had the USMELA mission and they had for, for the 80s was the high was high tech, high tech photo gear, recording gear, signals gear, souped up Mercedes. And they were hightailing around trying to pull the bear's whiskers, you know, gather, gathering intelligence and uh, getting away with stuff. And I said, you know, that shit, if I can't be in a troop unit doing fun things, that is what I want to do. So I became, I applied to become a Eurasian foreign area officer. They train you in the language. They send you to graduate school, immersed in the language, and then you get employed. And I was trying to be employed as a, you smell them. And uh, at the time, this was not the path to success in the army. Right. And I had a number of very uh, high level, uh, high ranking people in the 82nd Airborne Division come see me and say, look, you are a talent. You're doing great. Why do you want to go do this fail things? You're going to get passed over to major lieutenant colonel and your career will be over. You'll be done. You know, it's, you know, what are you doing? They were trying to help me, right. but they were telling me I had to do some job I hated for eight <laughs> years to get ahead. And of course that was, that's not on, you know, I'm going to do something that a, is rewarding, important, valuable, and fun. So uh, I said, you know, I appreciate it, but this is what I'm going to do now. Long story short, times change. The Soviet Union comes apart. There's no more use mellows, but we're busy trying to exfil exfiltrate all the nuclear weapons out of the former Soviet republics and get them away so that Russia can't consolidate them and that they can't be loose nukes, you know, around with terrorist groups. So that was Operation Sapphire. Got to be a little small, tiny, tiny cog in that wheel. Got to do a whole bunch of other stuff in the former Soviet empire, establishing U.S. military relations in the former Soviet empire to which we've had a very strong relationship now for many years in the Caucasus with Georgia and Armenia and Azerbaijan since I opened, you know, really relations with them in 1998 uh, for Wes Clark, who was the, the European command commander at the time. And it was a very, had gave me very aggressive rules of engagement, money, and not a lot of supervision. So what I got to do was amazing. It was amazing in a different way than you smell them. And it was amazing. And by the time I graduated from that, they said, oh, by the way, uh, we're going to put you in the command track and select you for battalion command. And by the way, what we want is people who are multicultural and who are able to interact with part partners and allies. And suddenly I became the model career <laughs> to be exposed to foreign cultures and to be immersed in them and to understand how to deal with them. And by the way, it paid off in Iraq when we had to deal with Iraqis. It paid off in Afghanistan, dealing with Afghanis. It paid off in other ways, dealing with all kinds of foreign militaries over the years, you know, since that training not just the Georgian, Armenian, Azerbaijan, and even the Russian, because uh, I was sent to spy on the Russians a little bit in the Balkans. Well, we were there and they were up to no good there. So that was a, that's another story maybe for another podcast. <laughs> and uh, so needless to say, I had a blast on my staff time. Then I got back to be with troops and to do troop stuff. And of course, during my time in battalion command, we, we sent the first American troops into Afghanistan in 01 with the SF. And then we sent, okay. we sent a brigade, a third of my uh, battalion went with them. 
and then we uh, we were all planning to go to Somalia because we thought that they were going to squirt out of Afghanistan and escape to Somalia. So the rest of the division was was actually planning a deployment to Somalia at the time. Now, in the end, that was we were diverted. Uh, they did not leave. They went to Pakistan instead, as we now I'll know know all now. Uh, that's where we found bin Laden, you know, who had been hiding there for a long time. Uh, and we all plaked our bags and planned the, uh, the invasion of Iraq, right. Which occurred in the, in the, uh, <clears throat> you know, the summer of well, when the hell did it occur? Spring of 03. So I took my whole battalion, including the returned soldiers from Afghanistan, uh, back, uh, into Iraq for the invasion and initial occupation, where we did a whole bunch of stuff that no one expected to have to do. Right. You know, uh, and so, from there, I took a break on a staff job at a NATO assignment, NATO Rapid Deployment Corps Italy, which I turned into a not a break because <laughs> General Petraeus recruited me. General Petraeus had been my division commander early in the war in the invasion and initial occupation. And he was one of the only commanders that had great success in stabilizing and pacifying the country and in reestablishing an economy and a functioning society. Other places had different challenges, and I'm not going to say they did a bad job. They just weren't able to be as successful. Um, so the president asked him to return when, when the, in the spring of 04, this coalition provisional authority collapsed and the new Iraqi government collapsed and the police and the army collapsed, the new one that we were trying to create, right. uh, president Bush turned to general Petraeus and said, I need you to go back and fix it. And this will all be under the military now, not just, not the embassy. Uh, so, so he agreed to go, but his condition was, I get to take, uh, seven to 10 of my team with me. To help me succeed. I'm not just using the pickup team that you've got over there. I want to take some of my key players. So he brought, he asked me to come and be his engineer, which I agreed to immensely. Uh, even though I had another year or two left in Italy before I had to do something else. Uh, you know, at the time <clears throat> the wife and son were happy, they were in Italy. And so, uh, I was able to go back and, uh, I, I wanted to go back because I knew Petraeus knew how to address the situation and could make it better, right? Uh, and ultimately lead to victory, which in the end he did uh, in, later as a MNFI commander. So uh, so again, a weird career path. And then after that, I was selected for brigade command and I got to command this brigade. Our brigade deployed to Iraq during the surge of 07, 08. And so we were busy in 18 of the 21 provinces of Iraq. Kurdistan by that point had been pacified, but we had people helping the Marines out in Anbar. Uh, we were doing work with them. We had uh, people all over from the south to the north. We had people in multinational division southeast sector doing work down there. And I took a whole bunch more of my brigade down there when the Iraqi assault into Basra failed. And then they needed our support to succeed. Uh, and that's a whole separate story that we can talk about as a little victory. But, uh, you know, we, there's so much we can deal with here. So I've had a very interesting, entertaining and uh, sporty career. <laughs> I've had a lot, got blown up five times, you know, and not a scratch on me. So I'm clearly not going to die in a vehicle. I'm going to die somehow. <laughs> uh, 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 but, you know, it was great Americans and really some great foreign partners the entire time. It was awesome. You you had um, – so I have in front of me a command policy from when you were in brigade command. And I do want to jump into uh, your experience under General Petraeus because I think there are some lessons learned there. But – um, one of, one of your principles is feedback is the breakfast of champions. Yes. And I think, I, I think that's leadership 101 and we are missing it out there in, in the world. And whether that's in the public service, private service, I think that 
we uh, we either get caught up in not wanting to hurt feelings uh, and we yeah. sacrifice organizational success, or we just decide to work around obstacles. And in some cases, obstacles are poor performing people and don't give them the chance to improve. Uh, but you have, you, you end this line with candor builds trust. Yes. Uh, and I wanted to see where, where that, you know, got ingrained in you to the point that it was, it was on your command philosophy statement. I, I learned it as a, a, a young officer where I had one commander who was actually very good at giving feedback and it wasn't, uh, you know, not everything tastes good. Let's be honest. Right. It was, uh, it was candid feedback and some of it was good. And some of it was like, you know, what is up with you, you know, and this, whatever this was, you know, uh, how did you come up with this? Because uh, here's where you went wrong in this way, this way, in this way. And how could you do better? Right. And that was an investment. First of all, this person was investing their time in, in cultivating me, not just evaluating me. It was, it's their job to evaluate you to determine whether you're going to be promoted, get awards, all those things. But that's the bare minimum. This person was investing in me to get better performance and uh, educate me and make me a better performer and officer in person, whatever. And then I worked for others who had no feedback, right? And uh, you never kind of had to kind of guess what they wanted and whether they were happy or not. And uh, that was actually super unhealthy, not just for you as a person, but for the organization. Um, and then there were some I've encountered that were unhappy with everything, no matter what it was. Also un, unhelpful. And when I say feedback, feedback that is useful and constructive. If I just sit here and call you an a-hole, well, you're just going to say, well, that guy's an a-hole too, so who cares? But if I tell you some things you're doing that are very good, and I say, oh, by the way, this isn't so good. You might want to look at this. You're going to take it on board because you you can you feel like you're seen. I am seen. I am appreciated as a whole person. And okay, and then if to be honest. Most of the things you get in feedback that are negative feedback is usually not a total shock to you, right? <laughs> it's like, okay, yeah, I can see that, yeah. Uh, so um, that was how I learned it viscerally as a person. And I had, of course, I had a, a, a seminar leader, you know, kind of like a homeroom teacher at, at the staff college who had really embraced this and uh, promulgated. And I said, you know, that's a catchy way to put it. Feedback is the breakfast of champions. I'm stealing that <laughs> for the rest of my career. You and I'm using that every day of my life. Yeah. Uh, you know, I'm stealing it shamelessly. I'm telling you right now. And uh, and frankly, its effect, in my experience, there's only really one or two times I can think of when it didn't work on a person. People are the way they are. They're they're that way for a reason. And if you can open up this feedback process in the right way, you can find out why. They are the way they are, whether that's good or bad for the organization. In some cases, it's a mix. I'll use one example from 326 Engineers. This is before we went to the wars, but we were getting ready and we knew we were going. And one part of our unit was already there. And there was this young man, <clears throat> very smart guy, because I ran all kinds of training. In training, you do all kinds of things, not just to build cohesion, but to, to develop their skills. But you're also assessing them. Well, who's... Who plays with pain? Who's a clutch player? Who chokes under pressure? So you got to give them a situation where they can succeed. Who, you know, what are their personal aspects that they they do well and other things they don't do well? So you can use them so that everybody can be successful and your team can be more successful, right? And so there's physical PT. There's you know you know combative PT. There's 
uh, all sorts of evaluations of their unit and their teams and their performance. And then there's, uh, I had a writing and reading program. We would read things they have to write about it and express their ideas and advocate an, uh, a proposal. And <clears throat> there was one kid jumping out in so many of these things. Uh, and he was, he had a reputation as not a very good platoon leader, which was in my experience so far to that point in the battalion command had been true. He was mediocre. He was not bad, nothing bad, just not great. And, uh, so one day we were out, the best time to do this is not formally sitting across the desk from each other, but we were out somewhere at a training site and I was talking, I was visiting the unit and uh, observing training and, uh, and I talked to, to this man, I won't use his name. Um, <clears throat> and I said, Hey, you know, you're, uh, we talked about his paper a little bit and I said, you know what, you're probably my smartest officer, but you're not my best one. What's, what's up with that? And it all came out. <laughs> he had come, he had joined the army. He was an ROTC scholarship student. He had married young. He married his high, college high school sweetheart. It was his college sweetheart. And they'd come in the army as a brand new second lieutenant. And his wife was not digging the army. And his wife was everything to him. And which I met her. She was a great lady. She actually, later she ended up volunteering in the support group. And she's great. And I totally see why. You know, that was absolutely. I have no... Nothing about his decision-making process was wrong. But I said, okay, Matt, I get it. You're in this. you got to serve your obligation, and you're going to go do other things for yourself, for America, for your community, whatever. That's all good. Not a problem. I said, but you have to realize you're here for another two years, <clears throat> and every bit of this right here is you and who you are. And if you half-step here, you're going to half-step in your next job. And you're going to half step as your church leader, or you're going to half step as your husband. You're going to half step. Just realize that. You're going to set your habits for life right here. So if you half step now, uh, you know, I hate to see it because I think it's going to be, you will shoot so far below your potential in life. It's crazy. Even if that potential isn't in the army, you know, I'd like it to be available for the army, but it, if, even if it's not, I don't care. It, it's a tragedy. And you know what? That kid exploded. Hmm. And he was a man, you know, but to me, he was a kid because I was twice his age. He exploded. He was he was not just my highest performing officer. He became the first Iron Eagle in the division. Pistorius was a big PT guy. He created this Iron Eagle competition. It was an absurd, you know, five event thing where you had to do, you know, 100 pull-ups and all this other stuff. He was the first one to do it. And he had never been known as a great athlete. He was top of everything. And he was so effective and persuasive and useful. I, when we went, had to go to Iraq to invade, we actually were working for a different head, core headquarters, the fifth Corps from Europe that we never worked with before. I put two of my smartest officers up there as liaison officers in the, in the G3 shop of the fifth Corps, And in the, they were so good. Not only did we get everything we wanted, you know, have fifth Corps tell us to do this because that's what we need to do. You know, <laughs> not only did they do all that for us, they ended up actually typing the fragmentary orders every day for fifth Corps because they wanted the smart guys to be, have their thumbprint on it because they were so good. So um, influencing know, beyond the chain of command right there. He left the army after his first tour, after great service in the war. Uh, he, you know, which he can be proud of. He, you know, he led ably. He was courageous. He, he was effective. He's out in the industry. He's doing great in industry. You know, he's a hero. 
community hero, family hero, you know, it's perfect. That's one example. I could give you 10 more uh, that that feedback process leads to, right? Because someone gives a shit enough about them to invest some time and attention to why it is maybe they're not doing as well in one area or another, but, but their gifts are, perce- are perceived. It's just that they're not acting on them. And some, and for others, it was a different issue. You know, it was a attention detail issue. It was something else. It was a personnel interaction issue, whatever it was. There was, uh, and there was a lot of positive reinforcement. You know, that's all part of feedback because you want to have people continue their best practices, you know, even as they're working their, their weaker practices. Right. So, uh, my, I found that no matter how much time I invested in counseling, and as a battalion commander, I want you to know the officers teased me about how much counseling they got. <laughs> they just did. There was a skit about that when I left. Counseling man. <laughs> but I've gotten, letter, I've gotten emails and letters from them since then in their careers, and they realized. They said, you know, I just thought this is how it was in the Army because it was perfect. It was amazing. But now they're in places where they never get counseled. They never get feedback. Yeah. Well, that's not, that's not, excuse it's me. A, it's, a sad, <laughs> it's, a, it's a sad state of affairs. So I, I'm a hundred percent in agreement. And, and I think, I think the same thing goes for, for industry, uh, back and forth between client and industry. If you don't give, if you don't give the client or if you don't give the, uh, contractor or the consultant or the, the constructor feedback, how do they have any opportunity to improve? And they're trying to please you. Exactly. Right? That's their job. Yeah. So if you don't tell them how, well, they got to guess what's in your pocket. That's crazy. Uh, and, I don't, you know, some of them were resistant. I won't lie. Yeah. But I got a double dose with a couple of them. They came to work for me again when I became a brigadier. <laughs> Suddenly all these old familiar faces started showing up, you know, because I was working my levers to get them there. And, uh, you know, to this day, some of them will send me a note and just ask me what I think about X, Y, or Z because they recognize I'm willing to invest that time. Yeah. with them and for them because I care about them, you know, and I do. Uh, and I did. And this young man I cared about and he, it, I'm, I couldn't be more proud of him now than if I were his dad, you know, because he's a superstar, you know, he was a superstar. He became one right then and it happened over and over again. So I learned then if, if I'm not giving feedback and spending time doing that with my leaders, uh, I'm probably not being a good commander. Um, and I think it's true in, as a public servant, leading an organization, a staff element, it's not just army units or Marine units or something like that. So w- one other quick question on, uh, because you mentioned general Petraeus's name and because you were on his staff, how was he on giving feedback? I've heard demanding. Yeah. Well, um, but in a different and interesting way, uh, he has some unique aspects to the way he commands. He likes to have a session where information is exchanged and he's making decisions on the spot and giving direction. And he wants his staff, whether it's virtually through the radio net or through a video teleconference or through whatever mechanism, he wants to be able to turn the organization on a dime, you know, and have action happen based on decisions immediately. Or, you know, his default, although he is a very intellectual man, he is not an intellectual in the way he approaches command. It is do something and we'll develop it as we go, right? And we'll figure out that something else is better. Standing there and analyzing the problem to death was never going to be a good answer for General Petraeus. You know, uh, you know, get get started doing something, and then we'll sort it out. Um, so a, a default mode for action. But his 
has, you know, he has, everyone, every boss has a personality. Petraeus has a personality. He's not a Newt Rockney. He's not going to take the team together and pump them up. That's not his MO. His MO is if you're doing really well, he's going to actually throw more and more close targets at you to take care of right away. Because he, and that, by the way, that's a feedback mechanism telling you that he knows you're good. You're doing well. Yeah. That you're doing well. Most people don't, some people don't realize it though. And they became very frustrated. It's like, no matter what I do, this guy keeps throwing all this crap at me. Yeah. Because you can take it, you can do it. Right. And he knows it and he's showing you that he knows it, but that was a weird way and an indirect and not as effective way of just saying it, you know, you're doing a great job. Now, Petraeus uh, had some help with the 101st. There's a chief of staff there that gave us some feedback like that on behalf of the general. He said, I want you to know, CG thinks you're doing a great job. I don't think Petraeus told him to do that. I think th this guy was a natural leader and he wanted to give that feedback. But um, so Petraeus's MO was, and if he didn't like you, if you thought you were, he, you, were you were messing up, he was busy getting things done. And so he would stop talking to you and he would work around you. So he talked to your deputy to get it done or to someone else on the team to get it done, uh, which is not a developmental leadership approach, right? It's sort of a make or break one. Right. So his, his background is, is, is his approach was different, but if you understood him, <clears throat> you could see where the puck was going. You could be ahead of him. And, and by the way, his brain was going to where the fight needed to go and where the operation needed to go. He was very insightful about the enemy and the situation so, you know, why fight it? You know, you know, get on board. And uh, <clears throat> you could, I didn't, I thought he was easy to read. Even just the questions he would ask, it's like, okay. Uh, so when, when I was a brigade commander, we worked for the MNCI commander, General Odierno. We can talk about his leadership style in a second. Grace <laughs> was MNFI commander. I didn't have to listen to those updates, but whenever I could, had the radio network uh, to do it, I would listen in on those because as soon as I heard it, his questions, okay, get ready. This is what's coming in 24 to 48 hours. We're going to be told to do this. And, you know, because I knew the guy, you know, I've been inside his head for a couple of rotations, right? Both in the first and then again later working with the Iraqis. So, yeah, I understand, you know, it was a very effective way to run an organization. It wasn't always the most developmental way, but you could say the situation at the times were a crisis. Demanded it, yeah. It demanded that kind of approach. But that was really how he was even back before the war. Okay. It was just his MO. It was a testing. Leadership was a testing thing, not a, you know, a cuddly feeling. <laughs> cuddly <laughs> feeling thing. You know, it wasn't touchy-feely. It was more smashy testies. <laughs> um, transitioning. Yeah. Transitioning to when when we met at North Atlantic Division and then later at your uh, Mississippi Valley Division Command, yeah. Um, I I have another statement here, and I'm curious how how it worked in uh, in the core permission statement. The unit that wins in combat and exceeds standards in garrison is the one that sees first, understands first, and acts first. If you know something that will improve the combat readiness or effectiveness of your unit. And if that something is legal, moral, and ethical, and you'd be proud to discuss it with the media, then just do it. Do it now. Don't wait for your boss's or my approval first. Tell your boss what you did after you act. In the beginning was the deed. You told me when I got to North Atlantic Division, there is opportunity laying on the floor. Just pick it up. 
Yes. And I, to this day, I repeat that. And I, I think that's one of those things that, you know, there's, there's so much out there that can be improved in any organization. And if you're a part of an organization, you owe it to that organization to be a steward of the resources and to find a way to improve their ability and their mission. So I was curious if there's any anything specific at, at North Atlantic Division or Mississippi Valley Division where uh, where you were able to instill some creativity and some entrepreneurship in those organizations to act and uh, get outside of the bureaucracy, if you will. Well, uh, the Corps of Engineers was a tougher organization in that respect. A, they weren't in combat. Right. In combat, the see first, understand first, act first is so important because people's lives actually are in the balance if you don't do that. Um, so the level of urgency is not as great, but the issues <clears throat> are very profound in many cases. There are life, uh, safety and health issues. There's you know, commercial vitality of communities at stake. Uh, there's all sorts of things in play, and they're, they're, they're generally more wicked problems in the core. Right. They're not going to be solved with a tactical action or a change in your procedure exactly. Although changing the way we manage the floodgates on the Mississippi is something that is beneficial and would be beneficial to do. And I started to do some of that in, in the Mississippi Valley Division uh, because we were managing them in a silly way that increased risk to everybody, including our own people and systems. Um, but uh, so it was harder to develop that. <clears throat> because also the core as an institution has an organizational culture that's risk averse. It's used to being criticized a lot by people. And oftentimes to be, to be fair, some of it is fair criticism and some of it is unfair. Every politician in America, local state or national would love to put the core of engineers in between them and any sort of problem <laughs> that they might be remotely responsible for, because, you know, then they can blame someone else and it's not my fault. Uh, and so that happens sometimes. Right. And, and so, you can get a little gun shy as a public servant with that. I think it's part of a general problem in the United States that we generally abuse our public servants and don't uh, admire them enough for what they do accomplish and, and, and do uh, achieve uh, often at great odds. You know, nothing is as easy as it looks and nothing is easy, as you know, since you've lived and done things. And so we have people that are doing some amazing things and they are not heralded. And generally, you know, the political dialogue and the media dialogue about public service has been bad, you know, and that's why we've seen some some lack of recruitment and some losses within any agency, you know, the State Department, the military civilians, the, you know, your Corps of Engineers, Naval Facilities Command, USGS, the EPA scientists who left in droves in the last four years, because their work was not uh, admired, appreciated. It was resisted and ridiculed, uh, even though it was scientifically and factually accurate. You know, what to do about a problem is a whole different discussion. That's a policy decision. But defining it, measuring it, understanding it, so you can have some options about what to do about it is not. Those are physics and uh, biology and environmental problems that are you can measure and assess. And, you know, you can be very precise in that. And I think if we can change uh, this mythos, I think it was a very terrible thing that came in sort of at the end of the 70s uh, because of some exhaustion over Vietnam and then the stagflation that resulted. We had this idea, and unfortunately, the Reagan revolution codified it, that government isn't a solution to your problems. It is the problem. Well, that's not true.
self-organizing profit-making entities that cherry pick certain things they can do and make a lot of money at are never going to develop the full range of social, economic, physical, environmental services that a very complicated, crowded society in the 21st century needs. There's a role for government. I mean, we've seen it going back to the times of the Romans in just simple things like fire departments and law enforcement that isn't privately owned. You know, it's governmental and a court system that's independent and not owned by someone. You know, uh, Crassus made all his money in Rome because he was the fire department and he would threaten to burn your house unless you paid him fire insurance. That's how he got rich. You know, we don't want that. That's not a service. You know, that's preying on the public. That So there's all sorts of roles for government. And the Constitution lays them out. The preamble of the Constitution lays out all sorts of things that the government should be doing, including promote the general welfare. Right. So this idea that government shouldn't do things is pernicious and stupid uh, and untenable. Unfortunately, we have a strong core of people that believe it. And many of them are very active in their media outlets. Right. You know, whether they're Internet or TV or radio. Uh, and they say things that are not even remotely intelligent. However, they have an audience, you know, every village, village idiot has an audience. Today. <laughs> and um, I think it has meant a lack of respect to public service in a way that has made some of public servants gun shy. Some don't care and they're willing to go out and do it, make something happen. And you know what? In the end, in life, 10% of the people you meet will love you. 10% will hate you probably for the same reason that the others love you. <laughs> and then 80% will be like, yeah, okay, I can work with her. I can work with him. They're fine, you know, don't really care. You know, that's how I approach things. And so whatever, if you turn out to be one of the 10% that think uh, not highly of me, oh, well, <laughs> you know, we're still trying to get something done over here. And in most cases in my life, I've been able to be successful. Uh, so, you know, no regrets. Um, and uh, so if I had to come up with something inside the core, I would say working with a very gifted commander in Europe district, we had this big project that we were defining to replace the Landstuhl Medical Center, which had been in Germany, what, for 50 years, right? Since the occupation of Germany, practically, right? We right. occupied the facility. And uh, it was a key and essential place, especially with the wars going on, because <clears throat> all the casualties were coming through Landstuhl. So it was a place with a very high traffic of very high trauma and intensive care patients, right? Not just the training accidents and normal stuff you'd see with troops nearby. And so... It needed to be upgraded in the desperately. And so the project was going to be this enormous complex at Ryden Ordnance Barracks, uh, and which is underway now and being built. And it's going to be probably two and a half, three billion dollars by the time it's all done. And there was a, there was a way of delivering work in Germany that was indirect con contracting. It was an arrangement made years ago when we were mostly just maintaining existing facilities. And the Germans wanted some of that work to go to their guys. And so we had like a jock arrangement where they would we turn the work over to the Bauamt, the German federal building, you know, agency, and they would do the work. And then here's your project, right? It was kind of like a black box. We dump money in a requirement and they'd come back and give us the project. And it really, frankly, in Nordrhein-Westphalia, where Ryde Ordnance Barracks is, it wasn't going that well anyway. And so when this project was brewing, I knew that I needed to get an agreement from the Bauamt, from the federal government, German federal government, because we cannot do this. We're not dropping this off. And <laughs> so uh, I with John Kem was that you may remember John Kem was the commander of the the uh, Europe district. He also could see this. And so he set up meetings and I didn't ask anybody's permission, the State Department or the embassy. 
Uh, I did inform the U.S. Army Europe uh, deputy commander who I'd been in touch with it because he was the facilities guy. I said, I'm going to go negotiate with the German government to do this project differently because it's a no, it's a super project. It's going to be over two billion. We've done about eight of those and we've learned a lot about how that's different managing than any other kind of work. So we're going to have that, you know, negotiation start. I said, I don't know how long it'll take. And uh, Herr Hoffman was uh, the director of the Bauamt. And we met in Berlin. And uh, he was very gracious. Uh, and, you know, during the course of the discussions, this feedback is a breakfast of champions. War is a continuous interaction between you and the enemy and you and the population around you, right? You can't cut yourself off from either of those things because you need to understand what they're doing, and what's happening and why it's happening, right? Well, so is negotiation. It's a continuous interaction. And as you, the more you talk, you figure out more about what their concerns are, what they need and what they can give, give up, right? And you can find that zone of agreement. And so we, we had it, it lasted all day. <laughs> it was probably a good nine hours, right? Back and forth. And, you know, I'd ask for the moon starting out and, uh, we're going to do this all ourselves. You know, we don't need you around, you know, I didn't really need that to be the outcome, but I needed to start there, you know, just to highlight that this is different and we're not spending this amount of money here doing it the way we're doing it now. And so he, he actually got, got that immediately. That was not really an issue, but there was a national pride and sovereignty issue. They had just done a bunch of mega projects worth several billion each to move their federal agencies from Bonn, the old capital, to the reunified capital of Berlin. So when I was talking about these special things that we learned about how to manage these big projects, he knew exactly what I was talking about because he learned them all the same way, you know, the hard way, right? So we understood and we were able to, you know, because of that mutual experience, we were able to connect and then find the combination that would work, that would allow Germany to have a role and to be this is our sovereign territory. You are our guests here. You know, we have the ability to do work like this. And so we will do a part of this and the U S and yet we gained so much more control over everything than we had in any, in any other way in Germany with the indirect contracting. So uh, that was a win-win that I would say was from the core. And that was because of insightful people at the Europe district who saw that this was a train wreck getting ready to happen and really queued it up for me to get involved. Now, fortunately, you know, they were, Fortunately, John and others knew me well, and they said, well, this is, if we're going to do this, now's the time, because, you know, the, this guy's background is such that he's done this work in Iraq, he's done it in the U.S., you know, this is the the time to negotiate this, not later. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and so, um, you know, that was uh, something that's, I would count as a success story in the core. There's other examples, you know, we could go on for hours and hours, and you, I don't know how long your podcast will be, but I'm happy to do more than one if you want to do other stories, it's fine. Hey, everybody. Hope you're enjoying our conversation with General Duke DeLuca. Join us next week where we pick up the second part of the conversation.